This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. G'day and welcome to another episode of LifeWords Q&A. Andrew Morris hanging out with David Ray for the next 15 minutes, answering your questions about life and faith. It's uh, a great 15 minutes, and I hope you're looking forward to uh, some questions that uh, your fellow listeners have submitted. David, welcome to LifeWords. Good. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, let's start with question uh, number one. And uh, our listener's asking, I'd like my baby daughter to be baptized once she comes to faith in Jesus. But someone has told me uh, I better get her christened now. So what's the difference? Will it affect my daughter in any way? Yeah, baptism is one of those issues that's um, caused some controversy amongst Christians over the years. Um, first of all, just to get terms right, um, some people call infant baptism christening. Now, that's not a biblical term. Um, different Christians think differently about baptism, and some use different terms. But christening is actually when people ask me, um, is, do you hold a christening service? I'm usually thinking, well, what they mean is baptism, because christening is just an old traditional term for infant baptism. So uh, my understanding is when I was growing up was when, when I was uh, christened, I was... Baptised, is that correct? Yeah, well, yeah, yes. Christening and baptism are regarded as synonymous in, in the infant baptism tradition. Yeah, yeah, they're the same. So when someone asks me for christening, I, I, I know what they're talking about. And I, I, yep, yep. So, uh, so in the Anglican one, so then when I was a teenager, I went to confirmation. Yes, that's right. Well, that's the that's the that's that's tradition in in some of the churches, including Anglican churches. It's also a tradition in others uh, that you're baptised as an infant. Um, and your parents, as it were, do that on your behalf. But the idea there is that you, when you grow up, you confirm the promises that were made by your parents and godparents for yourself. Okay, so that in, in that circumstance, David, confirmation is me accepting Jesus uh, actively. Well, 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 yes. It, it, well, it's a it's a confession of the fact that you have accepted a conscious, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, a conscious acceptance, and 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 the, the that tradition. Excuse me, has to have something like confirmation because infant baptism itself recognises that the infant has to. The service itself says, "Well, this child must one day have to make a response for themselves." And of course, the public liturgical response for that is confirmation. But you see, some people have nothing to do with that sort of thing. Um, and it's only some some traditions. I think it's true in the Salvation Army; they don't practice baptism at all. Mm. Um, uh, some reckon babies should be baptised, and others reckon only those who can verbally confess their faith should be baptised. Some people therefore put baptism and confirmation together, and some people only have baptism. Some people have a dedication service for infants and then have a, a baptism later on. So look, given such differences, we can't be dogmatic on the topic. We have to go with our consciences. I have baptised infants as a member of the Anglican tradition, but I've probably done more immersion baptism of adults than I have of infants. Uh, so that's just the way it is. But look, I want to say to this question, though, don't be swayed into having your daughter baptised as a baby out of fear. If you want to have her baptised as a baby, there's grounds for that. But but it's, it's, there's an old superstition that seems to be going around that if a baby wasn't baptised and it died, then God wouldn't accept him or her. I, I, I've had this statement from parents sometimes, oh, I've got to have my baby christened uh, because, because I've got to have them baptised soon. As there's almost this fear behind it. If something happens to the baby, oh, dear me, it's going to be dreadful. And that's a very different frame, uh, looking at God through a different lens. Oh, terribly the, different. The God that we look at is a loving God who yes. would never condemn a 
baby. Absolutely. But sadly, in the medieval church and so on, it was very much like that, that an yeah. infant had to be baptized. If you weren't baptized, you weren't buried in hallowed ground and, and consecrated ground and all this sort of thing. So do, as some of those superstitions are coming from uh, early forms of church rather than yes. from Jesus. And what yes, he early said. forms of church and particularly church which, which used a lot of its authority to enforce baptism on people yeah. and baptism became a right of entry, as it were, into salvation. But look, a bit of water will not make God love your infant anymore. Um, uh, it, it, what a travesty it would be of, of Christian faith if, if God were to be swayed by a bit of water um, on, on your daughter. So don't baptise with any such superstitious and mistaken ideas. And when I've conducted the baptisms uh, with people, I've always tried to explain that and, and, and really dismiss those superstitions and say, if you want to have your child baptised, that's fine, but please be not doing it out of superstitious or fear. It's often what I call the grandparent factor. Their grandma or grandpa or great-grandma or great-grandpa had those superstitions and have sort of somehow or other passed them down. I think contemporary people, contemporary parents, don't really embrace that. But I just want to make that clear, that, that if you choose not to have your daughter baptised now, it does not jeopardise herself or love the love that God has for her at all. Now, those who like infant baptism uh, see it as recognising the infant is in a special relationship with God because they have parents who promise that they themselves are Christians. Now, there's a lot of theology behind that that I won't go into, but that's the rationale for infant baptism, that the parents can legitimately make a promise on behalf of the child with the understanding this that the child has to make a response. But they, those who propose infant baptism like to see it as as a promise made on behalf of that child and reinforces the fact that that child is special to God um, at that point. Um, being, you know, but those who prefer believers' baptism feel it's better that the person being baptised speaks for themselves. My yep. daughters were baptised as believers, uh, funnily enough, even though I'm an Anglican minister. Um, and and, and I, would never, I would never quibble about that sort of thing at all. Um, I, I think, it, it, but I, the only thing I quibble about is if someone wants to be baptised or christened, as they say, as an infant, that it's out of some sort of superstitious or out of a feeling, well... I've got a bit of water sprinkled on the baby, then that baby therefore is all right. No, uh, first of all, sprinkling a bit of water on the baby doesn't make God love them or hate them or whatever. Um, and number two, that, that child has to, as they grow, make a response to God. So, uh, um, you know, you've got, to have the, you've got to have a right understanding. Um, and I'd say to the question is, the baptism itself doesn't affect your daughter, um, but your own nurture of it does. Uh, that's that's what's important. Thanks, David. It's amazing how much uh, our faith is influenced either from superstition or from uh, practices brought down from church yes. through the centuries yeah. or through even our own <laughs> cultural upbringing and how it intersects oh, with our indeed. faith. It's amazing. It is so amazing. I mean, in some areas of the world, there's so much superstition intertwined with Christianity. But even in our Australian society, I, I come across again and again traditional sort of views that are sub-Christian. Yeah, I, yeah. The more you read, you go, "Wow, that's actually something that's come through the church, through my denomination, yes, more than yes. the Bible." Oh yes, God's yes, that, that's right. And denomination, sadly, we all have the 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 tendency to sort of say, 
what we are passing through uh, down to you is not just tradition, it's actually the Bible, but yeah. in fact it's the Bible interpreted by True. a certain tradition. That's right, yeah. yes. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A, Andrew Morris, David Ray with you. Thanks for letting us be part of your day and hope you have enjoying uh, that question. If you've got a question uh, that's led on from that for David, you can email him, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. You can subscribe to the podcast through the iTunes store. Just look for Q, uh, LifeWords Q&A. But let's move on to our second question, David. My minister says the Old Testament's all about Jesus, but when I read it, I can't see Jesus in it at all. So what does he mean? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a bit of a question that uh, people have because the reason, the reason behind this question is, yes, your minister is saying the Old Testament is all about Jesus. In one sense, he's quite right. But in another sense, it's a question of saying, but hang on, uh, Jesus isn't mentioned there at all. Uh, so, so your minister probably means uh, that the Old Testament is the background to the coming of Jesus and that it contains some prophecies which predict the coming of Jesus. Um, but yes, you're right too. It, it doesn't specifically mention Jesus. Um, see, Jesus saw himself as the one who was promised in the Old Testament and the Old Testament repeatedly talks of a Messiah who is to come to fix things up and to show them in person what God was really like. So in that sense, all the Old Testament points to Jesus. Every bit of the Old Testament actually is part of a wider story which has its climax in Jesus. But not every part of the Old Testament specifically um points to Jesus. It, I think what I, how I would put it is that, that, that the very the broad general picture and story of the Old Testament all points towards its climax in Jesus, but not every specific episode um, relates to Jesus because so, the Old Testament is, is telling a much, much, much broader story. Um, and, and you can quote many instances of this where there's certain little episodes in the Old Testament where, you know, um, certain obscure and rather ugly, bloodthirsty passages in the Old Testament are really just part of the story of the people of God in history. Um, in general, it points to Jesus, but not every specific episode will um, point to Jesus. Uh, so it'd be fair to say that the Old Testament shows throughout many of its themes that the people of the Old Testament, say the Israelites, the Israel wanted to do it themselves. They wanted to, yep, yep. They wanted to do it themselves. Uh, they wanted their kings, and God said, well, that's not such a great idea, mm-hmm. but I'll give it to you if that's what you want. And basically everything led to their failure, in a their sense. Failure, their failure. And, and disconnect and, with God. And that failure, that disconnect in itself, points to the need for a Messiah. Um, The Old Testament, in one sense, is a story of the people of God sort of getting it right sometimes, getting it wrong other times, but always pointing towards someone who is finally going to put things right. Um, So we we don't make the mistake of trying to see Jesus in every Old Testament passage. I think some preachers have sometimes done that. Oh, I've got to find Jesus somewhere here. No, 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 not in that detail. But nor do we read the Old Testament in isolation from the New Testament. They go together. Um, you know, since the Old Testament all happened before Jesus, um, Jesus is the one who gives us a clearer idea of God. Uh, not to say you don't get an idea of God from the Old Testament, you do. But it's all sharpened and brought into sharp focus uh, in the New Testament. We see God, therefore, in the light of Jesus. So we read the Old Testament in the light of the coming of Jesus. But we read the New Testament 
in, in the light of the fact that there's a big story that's um, gone before. We don't ignore it. Um, the Old Testament has value in itself as it records God's dealings with people. And also, as you've indicated before, it shows us just how much we need the salvation that Jesus um, offers. So, yes, read the Old Testament just simply for what it is. But be aware that it is part of a much bigger picture. And you will see certain prophecies, you'll see certain parts of history that do, you, you and you might, your brain might be tricky to think, ah, that's pointing to Jesus. But not every verse and every episode and every historical happening will specifically point to Jesus, but the big picture certainly does. Thanks, David. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A with Andrew Morris and David Ray. You can subscribe to uh, David's LifeWords Daily Devotionals, uh, which comes into your inbox around 5.30, 5 o'clock each morning. It's a great way to start the day, along with verse of the day. If you just want a short, sharp verse from the Bible, it's... Uh, uh, a great. We've designed it actually after David's how he he does life words. He takes something from the gospel, the New Testament, and the Old Testament. Don't you? Mm, yes, yes. I, I range across the entire Bible. Yep. Yeah, and so verse of the day is based on that same principle of taking a bit from each of the the parts of the Bible. You can subscribe to both those emails at at hope one zero three two dot com dot au. Okay, David. Our third question is. Is there a certain amount of time I should pray each day? I hear some Christians pray for hours and feel guilty about how little I spend praying. Yeah, look, that, that's a common guilt issue. And, and, and it's a common question that people ask. It's a bit like when I was at college, people would ask, well, how many hours should you study each week? Well, honestly, there's so many variables there. Look, there's no set time period for our prayers. I don't think God is saying if you pray for 10 minutes, you're a failure. If you pray for 11 minutes, you're a success. And I don't think there's a necessary correlation between um, uh, you know, the fact that someone is praying for three hours, that they must be more spiritual. You see, um, uh, there's some people do pray for greater lengths of time, and they do so out of deliberate intention. I've had spiritual direction over the years from um, people in the Benedictine community, for example, um, down at Jamboree, lovely group of nuns down there who spend a lot of their time on prayer. But they've done that quite intentionally. There's a lot of listening and silence in that. Oh as well, yes, isn't yes, there? yes, yes. Much of the prayer is non-non-non-verbal. Non, Much of it is. So, so that's another. That's another little part of the question here. Yeah. That, so talk to us about that, David. Yeah. Don't think that prayer is all about talking to God. I mean, most of my prayers are wordless and speechless. Um, and and um, prayer can be a silent dialogue with God throughout the day. Uh, and you're hardly aware that you're doing it, but you are doing it. Um, you might not believe it, but as I'm answering these questions, I'm also, there's a there's a deeper part of me that is constantly saying to God, now make sure I'm not going to say something absolutely stupid here or something like that. Um, and, and I can be listening to a bit of music in the car and, and at the same time silently be bringing people to God and so on and so on. So prayer, we must not ever confuse prayer with, number one, just mere verbalization, or number two, with a specific prayer time. Now, now, I, I mean, there is it is good to have a specific prayer time, but like I was saying with the monasteries and the monks and the nuns and all this sort of thing, um, these people have fewer other time commitments. They have structured their time so as to make time for extended prayer. And good good on them for doing that. But you see, um, I can't expect a parent with a few young children to have as much free time as them or even as a retiree in good health. A retiree in good health may have more time to spare than um, a, a single mum with three or four kids. 
I mean, and I, I don't think God is 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 a disciplinarian there where he says, well, you've got to spend this. That person over there spends an hour in prayer. Well, you've got to spend an hour in prayer. I mean, but what what are we actually talking about? In essence, prayer is well, we're just coming before and hanging out with God, aren't we? That's pretty much what it is. In, 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 indeed, indeed. And so I, I think what this person here, first of all, let, let's clarify what we've said before, that, that is there a certain amount of time I should pray each day? Well, the answer is no. But let's, let's again, restate that uh, issue of prayer we, said, we, we were talking about before, that prayer is not just simply a set prayer time when you are verbally offering prayers to God. Um, so, so I would say that you can be praying throughout the day continually but let's let's look here perhaps and i suspect this is behind what the questioner is saying let's look at that that more focus on that that time of prayer and i think it is good to have a specific time of prayer each day i do and i think it's very important to have that because it allows me to focus on um on 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 things a little bit more intentionally like for example with a married couple the married couple will have ongoing communication throughout the day but there, there are times when it's good for the married couple to eyeball to eyeball across the kitchen table or something, um, have more focused attention. So I think there's those two types of prayer. But given, if you look at the more focused type of prayer, sitting down and actually having a prayer time, um, I, I, I would not even begin to think about how long you should be praying because a three-minute prayer may be more sincere and passionate and godly than a three-hour prayer. Hmm. I mean, it's like I mentioned before with how long you study. I mean, I could be sitting in my study studying for five hours but, in fact, only doing about an hour of real study. So um, we don't measure our prayer life simply by the time we spend and nor is God more impressed with hours of praying than minutes of praying. I think Jesus hinted at that that uh, he's not impressed with simple words. Uh, he wants us to pray and to pray as regularly and consistently as possible. I don't think it's, it's a bit of a cop-out to say, oh, prayer is just an ongoing dialogue with God, therefore I don't have the need to specific, have specific time with God. I think that's a cop-out because I think you need to have that specific focus time with God to gather your thoughts, to, to intercede for people. Our ongoing dialogue with God can be very self-centered. This is the situation I'm facing. This is what I'm feeling at the moment. And so there's the, so I think having a focused time with God can actually um, be a very, very enriching thing. Try to find some time each day for sustained prayer. It's usually possible, even if it's a challenge to discipline and priorities. Um, you know, it, it, and to someone who's overwhelmed with a whole lot of needs, I'd say, well, if you can just find five minutes just simply to sit down by yourself in relative silence and simply um, soak up God, listen to God, speak with God, read the scriptures, that's good. As the old saying is, you pray as you can, not as you can't. You, 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 you do what is possible. You don't read all these great biographies of all these Christians and find that they prayed for three or four hours. For heaven's sake, they often had servants. Um, they they often had a very different lifestyle to us. Um, so do what you can, and as you do what you can and you engage with God in prayer, God may well give you the grace and the opportunities and the discipline to increase your time in prayer, but I've never been impressed by measuring my the worth of my prayers by how much time I spend. But I tell you what, um, you know, the traditional upbringing we have tends to make us feel guilty. The, the idea of I've got to have a half-hour quiet time, it might be great to have a half-hour quiet time. Uh, it might be even better to have an hour quiet time. But, hey, don't let that sort of 
I call sort of a semi-legalism, cause you to feel guilty. Pray, give God the time um, that you have and seek his wisdom and help in creating more time because there's no doubt about it. The, the more time we spend with someone, the better we get to know them, that's yep. for sure. But we've got to be aware that there are a whole lot of priorities in our life. You, you, you can't simply turn your back on other obligations saying, no, thanks, I'm not going to help around the house now because I'm praying or something like that. I guess when you said focus, that sort of stood out to me, um, that prayer helps us focus on God and uh, something that I've been reading lately is uh, the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book by Pete Cazero, mm. and he does this thing called Daily Office. Daily Office, yes, I've read the book, yep. So the Daily Office is an idea of, as you said, focusing mm. on the presence of God uh, a couple times during the day. So it could be like, it could be two minutes, and it's... It- uh, exactly right. And then the good thing about the Daily Office, and that comes from a liturgical tradition, the Episcopalian and Anglican traditions, uh, that, that it is repetitive. Uh, you, you, it is a standard sort of thing, and what that does is lifts that sort of prayer out of the narrow, self-centered sort of thing. Nothing wrong with praying for yourself and for all that. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with spontaneous or silent prayers. But the daily office idea just builds that bit of discipline. I think our prayer lives operate best when there's a combination of discipline. I am going to set aside a time each day whether it's through a daily office or a prayer book or just through your own resources, I am going to set aside a set time of day where I am simply going to focus on the Lord, whether it be three minutes, 30 minutes or whatever, uh, and the spontaneous pray as circumstances arise. Yeah, and silence. And, and I think, and silence. I think I, now I, I'm, I'm not doing it every day, but I, it's something that I would like to aspire to. But when I've done it, David, um, of a morning and then maybe, say, at lunch, is it? It does definitely quieten your day down, and it helps you to refocus and just remember God in everything you're doing during the day. It's, it does, it, it's and, a, and silence, cultivating silence, silent, reflective. What some of the traditions even call contemplative prayer is one of the hardest things to do. And I talk about it a lot. I teach it a lot. I preach it a lot. Doing it, oh boy. It is so hard because our minds are so cluttered. We are often used to background noise all the time, wherever we are, and we're always thinking of the next thing we have to do. And what the old the old mystics call centering prayer is so difficult. Centering prayer is when you are focusing entirely on God and then all the wandering thoughts come in. And that may be something for another Q&A, but yep. how you deal with wandering thoughts is very difficult. But it is important to seek to have that time of just concentrated attention on God, not only not so much that you can unburden yourself to him, but that he can start working on you, that your will becomes more aligned to his. Mm. Great. We should talk about that. Uh, Andrew Morris, David Ray, it's been Life Words. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode. You can uh, listen to previous episodes at hope1032.com.au. In the meantime, we wish you the best and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.